What did the former attorney general turned political activist do to win over devotion from around the world? What did Ramsey Clark do to help set him apart from other activists? How will former students and colleagues remember the life of Leo Panitch? Why does Leo Panitch think the state rather than protest is the vehicle for transformation of politics? This week on the Global Research News Hour, a special tribute to the passing of two separate individuals who made their unique marks on the world around us. In our first half hour, Ramsey Clark is memorialized by his longtime co director of the International Action Center, Sarah Flounders. Then, in our second half hour, guests Greg Albo and Sam Gindon pay their respects to their longtime friend, Leo Panich. On this week's program, Hail to the Left, in tribute to our lost heroes, Ramsey Clark and Leo Panich. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of June 25th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Japan, and Israel were actively assisted by the U.S. because they were useful to the U.S. for political purposes. They are often held up as examples of rapid development using free trade, but this is propaganda. Representatives from those governments, together with numerous academic studies, have shown that these countries did not follow free market policies. They did what other advanced nations did to become successful. They protected developing industries against competition from overseas, and they provided government assistance to key industries and exporters. That comes from the article, Free Trade is Code for Forced Trade, by Rod Driver, posted June 23rd, originally published on medium.com slash in the room. He knew nothing of the yellow card system going for decades in the UK, a passive system. In the US, the reporting of adverse events to the Center for Disease Control was studied at Harvard University. Between 1 to 10% were actually received by the CDC. Humans receiving these inoculations of an experimental vaccine in the UK are not made aware of the yellow card nor of the importance of reporting adverse effects for those who are to follow. Although there is absolute censorship in the UK of dissenting voices of reports of adverse effects and of the clear benefit of the readily available 
ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the acute disease, there is now much information available in the U.S. That comes from the article, The British Medical Profession is Complicit in the Inoculation of an Unnecessary and Toxic Experimental Vaccine by Dr. David Halpin, posted June 23rd, originally published on the David Halpin website. The spike proteins being activated in virtually every cell of the human body are overwhelming the body's immune system, thus fighting it rather than enhancing it. This may lead to numerous complications and infections over time. Some of them, like blood clotting, resulting in thrombosis and other heart ailments, and death, may be immediate results after the inoculation. Other potentially fatal effects, many of neurological nature, may not show up immediately, but only over time. After one, two, or three years, it will then be difficult to trace the infirmity produced by the spike protein back to the vaccine. That comes from the article, The Spike Protein is the Killer, Beware of mRNA Vaccines, by Peter Koenig, posted June 23rd. A California physician could lose her medical license for not strictly following the guidelines for writing vaccine medical exemptions as outlined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's, or CDC, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, or ACIP. Earlier this month, the Medical Board of California conducted a trial during which they heard testimony from witnesses in support of and those opposed to Dr. Kelly Sutton's approach to writing vaccine medical exemptions for her patients. The three-day trial, which ended June 16th, took place in an administrative court with a single judge and no right to a jury. The judge is expected to issue a decision sometime in the fall of 2021 on whether or not to rescind Sutton's medical license. Sutton, an integrative physician, argued that her clinical observations confirm her unvaccinated patients are healthier than those who are vaccinated. That comes from the article, California Medical Board Hears Testimony in Trial of Physician Who Risks Losing License for Writing Vaccine Medical Exemptions by Greg Glazer, posted June 23rd, originally published in Children's Health Defense. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Ramsey Clark was 93 years old when he passed away on April 9th, 2021. He had formerly served in a senior cabinet position in the United States Department of Justice under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. As a trained lawyer and an activist, however, he ended up taking multiple stances in opposition to U.S. crimes in foreign policy around the world. He was definitely an antagonist to U.S. hegemony. He was founder of the International Action Center 
1992. This group maintains support for grassroots actions opposing U.S. wars abroad and acts of racism at home. During our show, we decided to get more details about his background. Sarah Flounders will be in momentarily with a good assessment of her colleague and friend. But first, here are a few testimonies to submitted out of a recent webinar. Ramsey at some point decided to commit revolutionary suicide. In other words, that part of him that was trained to defend U.S. imperialism, he killed it so that he could become a revolutionary anti-imperialist. And because of that, and because of all the work that he's done, even though he's gone, he will be remembered in the hearts and minds of all of the movements and peoples on every continent struggling against U.S. imperialism. And it was clear to see that they were friends. And I was so amazed because I had not expected ever to see anybody in any high office in the United States capable of being friends with Fidel. Ramsey Clark really manifested the old adage that no case and no cause is won by the timid. He showed courage and prescience as regards all liberation struggles, but especially the Palestinian struggle. Not only that, but he also understood the importance of practicing direct action in all forum, not just on the streets, but in all forum, from traveling to Gaza to meet with Palestinian Prime Minister Ismail Haniye, to helping break the siege on Gaza, to representing the Palestinian Liberation Organization, to writing books, deconstructing exactly what was happening to Palestinians under the Israeli regime. He always understood and spoke clearly, presciently, and bravely, calling for the full dismantlement of all Israeli institutions of settler colonization and genocide. And he was always unapologetic. In January 1977, Jimmy Carter's first act as president was to pardon Vietnam draft resistors and establish a case-by-case -case program for military deserters. But not all war resistors were covered. My friend Bruce Beyer, a public draft refuser, had been charged with assaulting a police officer after he was violently removed from church sanctuary in Buffalo, New York. In October 1977, Ramsey Clark escorted Bruce Beyer across the Peace Bridge near Niagara Falls from Ontario to Buffalo. Bruce spent a short period in jail, but was soon released and had a good life. Ramsey was courageous and compassionate. His deep moral commitment was palpable, calming, and inspiring. On behalf of all war resistors, thank you, Ramsey. His book, The Fire This Time, U.S. War Crimes in the Gulf, is one of the most important anti-war books I've ever read. His statement, U.S. foreign policy is the greatest crime since World War II, tells it as it is. No other former Attorney General of the United States would ever dare to say such a thing. Some years ago, I watched a program on PBS about former Attorney Generals in this country. They never mentioned Ramsey, not even one time. But whenever he was mentioned in the mainstream media, they would usually call him a traitor or a communist or a quack. Of course, none of these things were true. He was a truth teller that they could not tolerate. 
ad hoc courts were set up in Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and I worked as an investigator uh, for him. And I can recall the first days when I was in Arusha, Tanzania, and it was tough going and not a lot of sympathy for the African accused. And in the middle of the night, I got a phone call and there was that great voice and it said, hey partner, what can I do to help you out? And I, it was like uh, a wonderful moment because I knew that Ramsey was looking after us and had a plan. And so I said to him, you know, we need a mission statement. And he said, you got it and hung up. The next day we had a mission statement. And not long after that, Ramsey came to Arusha, Tanzania, and he brought with him the great Edmund Veen, a Philadelphia lawyer for real. And of course his wife, uh, Ramsey's wife, Georgia, and she was there like a cheerleader and kept our spirits up. Ramsey fought brilliantly in court. And I, I can't tell you how important it is that he did that work and did expose the fact that those ad hoc tribunals were victor's tribunals. In the mission statement he sent us, the title was, the tribunal is a war by other means. Sarah Flounders is a progressive political writer and has been an activist and organizer against war. She is now the leading director for the International Action Center. The Global Research News Hour got her to share her thoughts about the life of her friend. I had followed his very important uh, trip to Vietnam right after he was out of government. That was that was a shock that you know U.S. imperialism didn't recover and never forgave him for uh, because they were actively bombing Vietnam at that time, and so for him to go and actively oppose the war. Uh, that is the first time. He, he was out of government by then, it's true. Uh, but that act was uh, a, a defiance and a courage that continued consistently on every U.S. war. Everyone in the U.S. corporate media tried to put a heavy price tag on it by making him literally a non-person uh, the one way to make sure you had no coverage of an event was if he was speaking or they might cover other people. He was not covered overwhelmingly. Uh, and or he was there was ridicule in some elements of sort of the left liberal publications where they wanted nothing to do with him. Did it bother Ramsey Clark? He just brushed it off just like this. Uh, he felt it was irrelevant to what he was doing and saying, and he really didn't expect better from them. I, I will say that. He always thought it was very, very important to reach out to any, um, you know, journalist, author, correspondent that he could possibly reach and convince. Uh, but he also understood that they were writing for publications where the decisions weren't in their hands. And one of the best examples of that was really speaking right from Iraq and in the middle of the interview that had been so publicized uh, on, on CNN, apparently the White House called and they just clipped it. 
was he surprised? I don't think so. So um, that is uh, his experience throughout his whole life. And I don't think it stopped him. That, th those kinds of conscious crimes really pained him. And he went to great effort, uh, would send letters to every UN official, every US congressperson. That was a big task of what we were doing in the early days of the International Action Center. This is pre-internet. One thing about the war in Iraq is that um, President Bush at the time declared this is that they had in the, in the war, had, they had killed the anti-war movement that the, the movement was dead. They had overwhelmed it. And uh, we felt quite the opposite, that resistance was more important than ever. Uh, and while the country was hung in yellow ribbons and all kinds of um, ridiculous, really war propaganda uh, at the time, uh, our effort was to show that, that that struggle was continuing and that the consequences of the 1991 bombing and the sanctions, uh, we really developed a whole international campaign and the first campaign, I think that there has been uh, addressing the impact of US sanctions. That it's the most, it's the deadliest weapon of war, that it directly is intended and targets the civilian population this is not bombs falling on a military base. This falls into every hospital, into every home, into every marketplace. And so we went to great effort really to document this. It was a delegation to Iraq every single year. And every year it was challenging the legality of the sanctions. Every year we would get letters from the Treasury Department telling us we were in violation of US law and we would considered this an act of civil disobedience. The delegations became larger and larger. It included bishops and labor officials and, and well-known journalists. It, it was buses and trucks uh, bringing in supplies. And then from other countries, they started sending plane loads of supplies, even though planes couldn't land at Baghdad airport at that time. The first challenges to the sanctions were um, this effort to have from forces on the ground, from the US and then from other countries, a real challenge to the US sanctions and the starvation of a whole population. We, we published books, uh, The Challenge to Genocide. We uh, published this UN report that had been made and then disappeared. And I will tell you, it was a hunt to even find it and bring it to the light of day and print it, saying that half a million children had died from the impact of sanctions in Iraq in the first four years of the sanctions. So that was a very important campaign. We also began campaigns on the impact of the blockade of Cuba and uh, the impact on, because it was getting harder and stricter and, and just tightening all the screws at that time. Uh, so again, it was taking medical supplies, even taking pencils and crayons and things for children that were banned. Um, there was uh, really difficult issues that weren't understood at all because the propaganda went in the opposite direction. And that is against the U.S. invasion of Somalia. 
which was lauded as a great humanitarian mission against the famine. And of course, we said this has nothing to do with famine relief, which could be airdropped. This is really the launching of, uh, you know, U.S. military, as certainly Black Hawk Down confirmed. Um, so these were uh, important early challenges, and, and we gathered the forces who had been the most active and determined in the war against Iraq, who were just determined that there be opposition in place, challenging the U.S. here uh, on political prisoners, on the defense of Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier, Imam Jamil Alamin, so many others, the Texas death row cases, uh, so it was always connecting U.S. repression uh, and, and racist conduct here uh, and, and systemic racism with U.S. Uh, aggressions and wars and sanctions and efforts to just um, pull every country uh, in hand. This was also the years after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was really a question of how to reconquer um, and how to bring under their sway. Uh, if, if I have a minute to continue, uh, some of, one of the most difficult was opposition to the breakup, the U.S.-imposed breakup of Yugoslavia uh, and the, the war in the Balkans as really an effort to impose uh, NATO, a U.S. military-commanded uh, apparatus, into uh, the Balkans into East Europe, into the expansion and encirclement of Russia. So that also became a very important campaign where we were publishing books and delegations and were there on the ground uh, during the U.S. bombing uh, of Yugoslavia. Well, one thing about Ramsey Clark is he was determined to challenge his own government. This is the greatest center of violence in the world today, the greatest center of war of 800 military bases. Uh, so this was both his focus and it really reflects a reality today. And yet it's the most difficult thing to say. Uh, the most accurate, yes. The greatest purveyor of violence, my own country. Uh, now, we would get into discussions sometimes. I'm thinking of the younger activists because Ramsey would always say, my country, and, and we would say, or my government, and, and some of us might say, well, this isn't our government. You know, this, as you say, this is a plutocracy. This is a rule of the rich, the corporate. And say, yeah, but it's our responsibility to change it. So we better, you know, uh, take this as a really a personal challenge. Also, he knew many of these people. Uh, you know, the, certainly the, the young activists at that time, they certainly didn't. Um, but uh, he did, and he was willing to use his name, his past position um, uh, to the fullest to, to challenge them and, and attempt to uh, create some pullback or uh, to, to create a movement that would challenge these policies. One thing about Ramsey was he was so inclusive. He never said, well, I'm just addressing this war or I'm not gonna take a position on that issue. Uh, he was never too busy 
is someone knocked and said, we have an emergency. Every single issue he was willing to meet, consider, talk with people about what could be done, what he had the capacity for, pull in a number of, he knew all of us and, and, uh, and was always thinking also how, you know, there are legal things that he could draft. He was highly skilled and fast, you know, lawyer, you know, want to help on, on almost drafting a brief overnight, you would call Ramsey. Uh, he really um, was capable of pulling many different threads together uh, and showing how they were connected. Well, I, I think his legacy is continue to uh, target this criminal government, uh, continue to create um, mass vehicles for doing that. There, there is no one around that has both that legal and personal skill and standing, but that doesn't mean we can fold up. Uh, now, I've just come back from a delegation to the tiny island, isolated, poor, completely underdeveloped uh, country of Cabo Verde, islands off the west coast of Africa. The US kidnapped a Venezuelan diplomat a year ago. He was taken off a plane from going from Venezuela to Iran. And this diplomat, what was he doing? This is Alex Saab. He was purchasing emergency supplies for Venezuela under sanctions, food and medicine and essential fuels from Iran had nothing to do with the U.S., the transaction between Venezuela and Iran. But the U.S. is enforcing sanctions on the world. Now, you can't touch a, a diplomat, yeah, diplomatic immunity. But here they have kidnapped, tortured, held for a year a Venezuelan diplomat. And so a delegation going there and opening a campaign, we feel is very much part of solidarity with Venezuela, an opposition to the sanctions on Venezuela and Iran. And of course, it is immediate uh, assistance to someone who, if they are extradited to the U.S., will face a horrendous time here where, where torture is very much used, isolation, disappearances in the U.S. prison system. So we are fighting his extradition. And that's just one of many things. Uh, today is a week for Cuba solidarity, was so much part of the Black Lives Movement, which showed that millions, consciousness is changing. Uh, consciousness, there is not any longer the support for the US government and its wars and any current really of the US population. And there is a global interconnectedness. So. We have to very much keep that in mind too. We're not the only voice. We speak with so many uh, activists around the world who just naturally connect to each other on Zoom, on the internet, uh, on Telegram threads with each other and so on. So the connections are growing and I think we need to take a lot of confidence in that and to use some of the examples of, of what Ramsey did so successfully and say, uh, we have a determination to continue that. He, he was, was a life well-lived, full of many challenges. And, and that's what he always said, too, that he really thrived on, on all of this uh, uh, and, and loved doing what he was doing every day. He 
did not apologize for it, did not worry that had he done enough, he had done everything he possibly could. He took real risks. He went into war zones again and again. And uh, this was very impressive. And he did it without fear. So others, I was on a number of those delegations. The person who's leading the delegation seems like, you know, uh, they're, they're tuned into what the people there are suffering. It takes the attention off your own fears. And I think that's another thing that he was constantly uh, showing us how to tune in to the consequences of these policies and, and not look at uh, your, your own situation. The United States military expenditures exceed those of the top 12 government expenditures on earth by themselves and are more than a third of all the military expenditures on the planet. We have a war party in this country and we've had it all along. And you can call it Democrat for a while, you can call it Republican for a while, but it has been the special economic interests in this society that have governed us from the time that we founded our governments on this continent. And the people have never controlled those governments. We call ourselves the world's greatest democracy. We are absolutely a plutocracy. It's the most obvious thing in the world. Wealth governs this country, and wealth uses military violence to control the rest of the world as best it can. And we're responsible, and we will pay the price for it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Leo Victor Panitch was a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, a distinguished research professor and Canada and Canada Research Chair in Comparative Political Economy at York University and editor of The Socialist Register. He has authored a number of books, including The Making of Global Capitalism, The Political Economy of American Empire. He passed away December 19, 2020, suffering from complications related to COVID-19. Professor Panitch was born in 1945 to a working-class family in Winnipeg's North End. He got a PhD in London under supervisor Ralph Milliband and then taught in Carleton University, where his intellectual abilities, enthusiasm, and foresight made Carleton at the forefront of political economy of Canada. On today's show, we bring two longtime colleagues and friends to share a little of what they remember of him. Sam Gindon is a Canadian intellectual and activist known for his expertise on the labor movement and the economics of the automobile industry. He has known Leo Panish since his days at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg. Um, yeah, I, th- I think anybody who went through the 60s was uh, affected by how much was going on. I mean, in Canada, you were affected, and how much was going on internationally. In Canada, you were affected by the civil rights movement in the United States. Of course, the Vietnam uh, War was critical. So, so that was that was a crucial background. Uh, Greg Albo teaches political economy at the Department of Political Science, York University in Toronto. He is on editorial boards for a number of political economy journals and has submitted to a number of them, including Monthly Review, 
Studies in Political Economy, Canadian Dimension, and Social Register. He has been co-editor of Socialist Register for a decade now, alongside Leo Panich. Uh, we both are from Winnipeg, different parts of, uh, of working-class Winnipeg. He, he was from the North End, I'm from Transcona. And, um, you know, uh, I was about, I guess, 15 years behind him and his cohort at the University of Manitoba. And uh, we actually had studied with some of the same professors and faculty. And long before I'd met him, I'd, start her, I'd, I'd, I'd been hearing about this uh, famous cohort at uh, the U of M that included Leo and Sam Penn, uh, Sam Ginden, uh, Harold Chorney, uh, uh, Sim Gill, uh, uh, Warren Magnuson, a whole cohort of these people that became prominent in the Canadian Union movement or in Canadian academic, left academics. And many of them had studied with Saigonic, and so I started, had started hearing about Leo through that. I, th- I think as well in Winnipeg, the particular case of Winnipeg, Winnipeg had this left culture and left tradition. Uh, there was a leftism in the air when you were growing up. It didn't even have to be that explicit. So we were also affected uh, by the specific circumstances and history of Winnipeg. Uh, we were also both very much affected by Saigonic, who was teaching at that time when we were both in his class. And uh, he had a major effect on us. I, you know, We discovered uh, Vietnam through Sai uh, chaining himself to the parliament, parliament buildings before we knew anything about Vietnam. So, uh, so you know, it was, it was the specifics of Winnipeg, it was individuals, it was the times. Leo and I and Sam would often joke about there being a kind of a, we were part of a Winnipeg Marxism school uh, with Cy and a few others, John Loxley, other friends, and Ternomas, Fletcher, Berger, a few, a bunch of people in in Winnipeg, and uh, uh, so there's something uh, 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 that he that were that he had taken out of the new left as it was in Winnipeg, forming in the 1960s uh, from Sy, uh, but also kind of people like Paul Phillips and others that were uh, becoming professors there. Uh, but there was also an older generation. One of them was the left Keynesian economist Clarence Barber. Uh, who is a longtime important figure in in, uh, in in progressive policy circles in in the in the Manitoba and Canada, and then also the 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 Marxist or Marxist influenced uh, labor historian Claire Pentland and his writing a kind of about the making of the Canadian working class. So, you know, some of the intellectual influences are from the beginning out of that moment. I think out of the out of the University of Manitoba, and of course uh, for Leo and Sam. It was also the Jewish, the left Jewish community in the North End at that point in time. Uh, obviously, was a, you know, a, you know, a, as everybody knows across the country, if not the world, was a, a milieu, a hothouse for, for generating these important figures uh, in cultural matters. And in- Ralph Miliband was his mentor, and that had enormous influence on him. And of course, he was just, he was also active in uh, student politics and. Uh, uh, and uh, anti-Vietnam protests at the time. And I went to school in Madison, Wisconsin. So we were separated, but we stayed in touch in those days through writing long letters. Uh, we visited each other. I was in London a couple of times. So we were in touch forever. And I, I, I think that uh, in term, just personally, in terms of my own ideas, I, I can't 
I can't distinguish what was my idea and what was uh, Leo's anymore. Thinking through of a of, of a revolution in terms of that kind of uh, of the you know the single rupture of, of the Russian Revolution and thinking that you know revolutions now are not going to occur in one blow. They're going to be a series of ruptures and a series of ways that the that the institutions of of, of capitalism are broken. So. You know, the range of thinkers that uh, began pushing that, uh, uh, developing that thought um, on the continent of Europe as well were important, such as Andrei Gortz, uh, Nikos Palantzis. Uh, one, one could name, you know, the, much of the Italian communist movement uh, also would be thinkers along that line, uh, particularly the new Gramscians that had emerged out of Italy and outside Italy reworking and thinking uh, Gramsci's uh, uh, politics and political intervention. Leo's great contribution was to emphasize that protest wasn't enough. You had to address the state. And in terms of the make, in terms of global capitalism, his argument was that states weren't the victims of globalization. They were the ones who authored it. And that was very important that globalization couldn't have been made. It didn't just happen inevitably. It had to be made, and it had to be made through states, with the U.S. in particular playing a key role. And, and this notion of the internationalization of states, how do you solve this dilemma between production being international, but the states being national? Uh, Leo's answer was that there was an internationalization of states, which meant that nation states took responsibility for the making of global capitalism within their territory. They created the conditions within their own country for global capitalism. Uh, you know, creating the conditions in terms of labor relations, creating the conditions in terms of supporting business. You especially saw that in Canada. I think that's one of the reasons that that insight came to Leo because of the Canadian experience and how it treated American business. So the notion that globalization had to be made and wasn't automatic and that was made through states was an absolutely critical part. The other thing was, uh, like other Marxists, Leo looked to the working class as the agent, the social agent of social change, but he never romanticized the working class. And again, that was crucial because the working class had to be made. The class formation was the main reason for having parties. So this emphasis on the working class in a sober way was important because it meant you had to think about this seriously. It wasn't a cliche, it wasn't a slogan. Uh, you didn't give up if the working class didn't make the revolution because it, they, you know, it wasn't automatic. So thinking about the working class and how it's actually, how it becomes a class rather than fragmented workers, workers who are dependent on their bosses, workers whom survival forces to think pragmatically in short term, workers who are exhausted by their work. Uh, Leo really struggled with, well, how do they become a class? And the third thing that's related to that is the answer to that question depended very much on a socialist party. And a socialist party, of course, engages in uh, electoral politics. Uh, you're trying to get into government, but for Leo, the key, the key questions of coming into government was first of all, that you had to have a base before you got into government. It wasn't like you sneak in and then do good things. You had to have a base of support because the role wasn't just to get into government, it was to transform the state. The state that existed was a capitalist state, not just in the sense of who ran it and what their ideology was, but all their capacities that had been built up over the past, previous 150 years 
or about administering a capitalist economy. And if you're going to develop a socialist economy, you had to create new capacities. You had to create the capacity to plan democratically, for example. So you had this twin problem, if you were in government, of how do you transform the state and how do you keep building your base? Because often your base would still be thin. Workers might elect you because they want good things, but they're not necessarily electing you to make a revolution. And transforming the state it was, a, you know, it was a really big topic, you know, a big challenge. And you couldn't do that unless you had the kind of working class base, including workers who operated in the states. And we're just in the state and we're just saying, OK, now that we elected a new government, uh, we want higher wages. But we're thinking about, well, what's really going to be different? So so the question of a party revolved so much around the question of class formation, as opposed to the social democratic concern with uh, how do we compromise and accommodate so we can get elected? So I think, you know, that was all uh, absolutely crucial uh, to, to Leo, those three things, the state, the working class, the question of party, I would say was uh, probably um, the three main things that he had an influence on. And I said, as I said before, it wasn't just that he was writing about this intellectually. He was out there. He was out there speaking to the left and to activists and trying to be a popular intellectual at times, but usually because the left was so weak, trying to develop the kind of left that could actually take these kinds of ideas forward. Who were trying to rethink and remake a new socialist politics that was kind of, uh, the, that was about the workers' own, own self-emancipation uh, and other oppressed uh, peoples. And uh, uh, also were uh, thinking through what an actual institution's and processes of democratization would look like and what they would be to struggle. So that immediately then connected with the, the wider elements of the, of the new left from the women's movement to the peace movement to the ecology movement as it, as it was emerging. And all these found their way into the pages of the register uh, uh, from the beginning. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think that was kind of end, ended up being a constant reference point. The idea of teaching and of, of, of uh bringing new ideas to undergrads, of developing a new cadre of Marxists in terms of his grad students, of constantly giving speeches and uh, interviews and trying to you know, create a, a new kind of a common sense. These were really important parts of Leo. He was great at doing these things. Um, and, you know, and, he, and he interacted you know, in, in critical ways with political movements. Uh, he, you know, I got a note from the uh, uh, landless movement in Brazil when he died because he'd been down there in their education program. He spent time with uh, people in Corbyn's cab, you know, cabinet. He would spend time with the leaders in Sarisa, uh, arguing and offering advice. So there's that broad way that goes far beyond being an intellectual sitting, writing brilliant things in his own, uh, in his own office, in his own house. Was a huge demonstration in, in, in Winnipeg uh, on the Refuse the Cruise, you know, one of the bigger demonstrations of the, maybe even the biggest demonstration of the 80s in, in, in the city. Uh, uh, and when I moved to uh, Ottawa, you know, there was uh, developing a similar demonstration.
uh, I had met Leo at Carlton by then, but it was kind of at that demonstration where I kind of joined some of the people from the Ottawa Committee for Labor Action. And Leo was with there with his uh, longtime friend. And, that, and as it goes, another Winnipegger, Donald Swartz, who was teaching at Carlton and a uh, person who would collaborate with Leo. And they were dressed up uh, uh, for the demonstration in uh, kind of uh, mock suits and ties. And uh, one of them had on the Reagan mask and one of them had on the Mulroney mask, or no, the Trudeau mask, I guess then. And, uh, uh, you know, they were uh, marching in the demonstrations <laughs> and clowning around. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, it was uh, uh, quite, uh, uh, quite a bit of fun. And uh, seeing that kind of uh, fun and uh, at the demonstration and kind of the, being connected already to the teaching he was doing in the classroom was just kind of... Uh, uh, made an impression on me that I kind of right, uh, wound up in the, in the right place uh, where that Winnipeg sense of humor and uh, fun had traveled <laughs> to Ottawa and I could find a, a niche with it there. So it was, it was great to see that. Incredibly smart Turkish students who are from the left and partly in exile from the, from the turmoil of the dictatorship in Turkey. And they were smoking heavy Turkish cigarettes in the class. And Leo was smoking heavy in those days. <laughs> the classroom was, you know, we we're debating Palantis or Miliband or whatever. And the classroom was just heavy with smoke before the seminar ended. And I was sick every class on the way home, not from the discussion, <laughs> but the, that heavy part was okay with me. But the, uh, the, 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 the smoking and the discussion that did me in together. So that kind of a, that's a, just an unforgettable uh, sense of kind of the seriousness and the intensity of that class. Uh, those two things kind of, kind of a, uh, consistently reminded, uh, remind me of the one, the one being the, the intensity and seriousness, which we, which uh, he always took and try to convey to his students and, and friends the seriousness of intellectual debate and political debate and really working through the ideas and how those ideas connected to kind of uh, the project of human emancipation with, uh, with the fun, <laughs> the fun that also had to come with demonstrating and being part of the left. And uh, you know, our demonstrations had to be fun and, and meeting friends and sharing a drink and sharing coffee and whatever, and, you know, the, those two kind of things were, were uh, you know, were uh, probably to some extent for me the two uh, most central features of him. I, I think the first thing that will probably strike anybody who meets Leo is that he takes up a lot of space. And this wasn't just because he was tall and gangly, but he took up a lot of space in almost every way. You know, if, if you were dancing, Leo was the guy who was uh, taking these long steps and his elbows were flat, you know, flapping and you better stay out of the way when he was dancing with Melanie, his lifelong partner. So he took up space socially. Leo could have the kind of debates with you that if somebody else was arguing with you that way, you might not stay friends. Leo would argue and it was understood that uh, the point of the discussion was to get at the core of these issues. And so uh, people loved Leo. You know, they, they even when they debated or even, you know, uh, somebody somebody gave me the example, he would uh, give you back a paper that you just wrote and you think it was pretty good. And he'd uh, then you take a look at it and it was all scratched out and everything was moved around. 
and you kind of got depressed and Leo would just put his hand on your shoulder. And it was, you know, what he was really saying is you're gonna be okay. This is part of the process you're going through. So there was an enormous, you know, Leo generated love, he generated energy, he inspired people. And so there was a happiness to his life. And, you know, so that kind of compensates for losing him. You know, you're still going to miss him. Their theoretical work, but also the political organizations that they created had reached a certain limit. And that our task was to recreate and build uh, new forms of political organization and bring those into the movements. And that had a lot to do with the, the great theme, with some of the great themes of the they came out of the new left of the 1960s. That is the re need to remake working class politics and reform the working class and experiment in all kinds of new forms of democracy. Uh, so he kind of fit within that milieu and to some extent because he was such a, uh, an itinerant traveler around the world. You know, uh, uh, he was just always on the go in, in a way to a conference here and conference there and both of kind of academic and also a political kind. And over his last years, uh, even more political than academic often, you know, from in Greece to uh, Corbyn in Britain to the MST in Brazil uh, to uh, uh, struggles of the South African left. He was always on the move and kind of was connecting with these new forms of politics across Canada and across the world. And to some extent, you know, we, you know, he was, became uh, seen by a lot of people as, as, as being one of those key intellectual bearers of that in both intellectual matters because of his writings uh, and, and political intervention through the Socialist Register and just his connections with a lot of, the, lot of these people. One of the questions that intellectuals always ask is, well, what was his intellectual legacy? But what really struck me uh, when Leo died was how many people just felt this personally. They were thinking of Leo the person, Leo the man, Leo that uh, passed on so much to them, Leo that helped make them what they were, uh, Leo that is going to live on in all the things that they're doing. And uh, that's kind of interesting. It's only, you know, after you step back a while, you can start listing what he actually accomplished. I, I should say in terms of the legacy thing too, uh, a momentum in England uh, started a cadre school, a leadership school, and they named it after Leo. Uh, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. There's a lot of people to name things after if you're in England. There's a lot of people in England. And when you broaden your perspective and you're looking at the whole world, there's a lot of people to name a school after. And they chose to name it after Leo because of the role he had played in their in developing and then challenging them and in uh, inspiring them and keeping them going. So uh, I think all of those things really come together. And, and, and you know, his, his family life, he loved his family. He loved, you know, he loved, uh, he loved Melanie. He loved spending time with her. He loved watching movies together. He loved traveling together. He loved, he loved arguing with his kids who were both strong and skeptical about a lot of his ideas. Uh, so, you know, he was, he was proud of them and yet always ready to debate and challenging them. It really <laughs> hardened them. They, they, you know, they could take that and it strengthened them. University is incredibly backward going into the 1960s in size, number, size of the, none of the population that was going through, through 
you know, still a lot of anti-Semitism in Canadian universities in the 1960s. Uh, you know, that the space that opened up, you know, he helped open that up even more in, in his writings in the 1970s and some of the institutions and journals, et cetera, he helped build up, you know, uh, obviously, uh, you know, linked with uh, Gonic and Canadian dimension, but also, you know, studies in political economy as one of the foremost uh, 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 academic journals uh, in Canada and, and the foremost critical one in Canada, along with Labour Later By, which he also supported. And a range of kind of the institutions he helped build in the, you know, in the two universities he taught in at Carleton University and New York University. The fact that we've never been able to create in Canada over the last uh, several decades an adequate opposition to neoliberalism and the various attempts uh, to build a, you know, a strong current in the Canadian Union movement to remake the politics of the Canadian movement uh, were, have been eclipsed. And, you know, the Canadian Union movement used to be one of the most vital in the, in the world in fighting uh, uh, competitiveness and so on in the, in the 80s and early 90s, you know, has kind of become a very weak, disoriented union on its heels and not, you know, not figuring it at all, at all how to kind of move ahead organizationally otherwise. And the other thing is, you know, there's no major political legacy of uh, that new left moment as an organizational structure in Canada. You know, we have not, the, the NDP has become one of the most conventional centrist parties in the world, one of the most conventional social democratic parties in the world uh, with hardly any space in it for the left. And outside we have no uh, political organizations of any weight. We have a lot of little groups here and there, some of them doing, uh, you know, quite positive uh, political work. But we are not, you know, we're not a social force in this country. Um, and that clearly was one of the, his, uh, his and our uh, disappointments over the struggles over the last uh, uh, number of years, despite the many, I think, uh, uh, quite amazing. Uh, I really would get back to the fact that Leo was a public intellectual. The ideas that he came with, he was always conscious of, they had to be communicated. It wasn't just good enough to speak, be speaking to abstract academics. They had to be communicated. And he could understand the difference between trying to get these ideas across to people who had studied Marxism and therefore would be developing this. He had a lot of respect for developing ideas. So it wasn't that he just always just thought about simplifying them, but they had to be clear. They had to be communicated. They had to be open. They were all things to think about. Nothing was rigid. Uh, and, and he was very conscious about passing this on at every level, students, uh, activists, uh, uh, people who were in politics, and he respected people he disagreed with in politics because it's, it's hard to change things. Um, and, you know, the, the notion of trying to develop a, 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 an alternative common sense and having the confidence that we actually stand for a future that brings the best out of humanity. And that's what it's about, uh, you know, that, that sense of, you know, I said earlier, you know, what more can there be in life other than enjoying it and then passing, you know, and, and then engaging in the struggle to make it better for everybody. That was former colleagues and friends of Leo Panitch, Sam Gindon and Greg Albo. I had a chance to interview Professor Panitch 
one time while he was in Winnipeg, I will conclude this chapter by playing an excerpt of that conversation which imparts his latest thinking about the new path for socialism. It's, the, it's not that hard to walk out in the street. It is much harder or to press a button on a computer screen. It is much harder to be able to deliver milk to families as the general strikers did. Uh, that came out of aid societies, uh, uh, socialist organizations, unions that had developed people's capacities, their institutional capacities uh, to run their own lives. We've lost that rather than gained it over the course of the last century. So when a Sanders or a Corbyn emerges, in a sense it's premature. We need to go back to the type of political institution building uh, that went on from 1880 to 1920 that is not only bringing in members and getting their dues and getting their votes, but is creating the type of institutions in every community where people are learning how the system works, learning how to change the system, learning the capacities to run a meeting, Hmm. learning how to make delegates, people they elect, accountable to them, becoming articulate with regard to political questions, etc. I often used to say that my father, with a great six education, knew more about how to run a political meeting, knew more about Robert's rules of order, knew more about how to make his elected official accountable than my uh, fourth-year students in political science. <laughs> and he did, and he learned that in the institutions that produced the Winnipeg General Strike. He learned it as a trade unionist. He learned it as a member of the Winnipeg Aid Society, which was a Jewish organization to which he paid pennies a month to ensure he wouldn't lie in a pauper's grave when he died, hmm. uh, to give him some basic insurance before the era of the welfare state. And workers learned there. Uh, things that they some, somehow that they to some extent lost when the welfare state took all that over for them, right? Uh, we need to build the institutions capable of allowing the class to rule itself. That can't take place without changing the state. Uh, but that's that's the task. So hmm. electing Bernie is necessary or Corbyn, but it, it, it will not yield what we need if we aren't doing what we need to do in every locality to build institutions. That was Leo Panitch in conversation two years ago. That's it for today's program. Next week, we begin a series of special broadcasts in the summer. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.